0: Welcome to the Not Old Vetter Show on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest today whom I will introduce in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 671st episode, and I spoke to Smithsonian Associate, author, historian, and educator, returning guest, Clay Jenkinson about the future of the U.S. Constitution. Two weeks ago in another great interview, I spoke to Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stacy Schiff about her new book, The Revolutionary, Samuel Adams. Wonderful stuff from Smithsonian Associates. If you missed these shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. And if you leave a review, we will read it at the end of each show. Please leave reviews on Apple Podcasts for us.
1: Ten years ago, I got a phone call that changed my life. At the time, I was a cardiologist at UCLA specializing in cardiac imaging techniques. The call came from a veterinarian at the Los Angeles Zoo. An elderly female chimpanzee had woken up with a facial droop, and the veterinarians were worried that she'd had a stroke. They asked if I'd come to the zoo and image the animal's heart to look for a possible cardiac cause. Now, to be clear, North American zoos are staffed by highly qualified, board-certified veterinarians who take outstanding care of their animal patients. But occasionally, they do reach in to the human medical community, particularly for subspecialty consultation. And I was one of the lucky physicians who was invited in to help.
0: Hey, I got a riddle for you. Maybe a little bit of a joke. What do you call a veterinarian that can only take care of one species? A physician. As you just heard from our guest today, Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz, who is a physician, she will share today with us how a species-spanning approach to healthcare can improve medical care of the human animal, particularly when it comes to mental health. Dr. Natterson Horowitz is co-author of the amazing book and creator of the TV series Zubiquity. Zubiquity explored how animal and human commonality can be used to diagnose, treat, and heal patients of all species. Infertility, lung cancer, anxiety, obesity, eating disorders, heart attacks, and PTSD are common in humans, but they are not uniquely human disorders. Concerns about the disease associated with animals have encouraged researchers around the world to try to bridge the gap between animal and human medicine. Drawing on the latest In medical and veterinary science, as well as evolutionary and microbiology, it's now understood that animals and humans suffer from many of the same problems. Practitioners and researchers like our guest today, Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz, are actively comparing the human and veterinary approaches to shared ailments and transforming medical procedures and research in the process. Through observation and research studying animals in natural settings, cardiologist and evolutionary biologist and Smithsonian associate Barbara Natterson Horowitz has uncovered and evolved various adaptations for some of these conditions. Dr. Natterson Horowitz today will explore, along with answering our questions about how our vulnerability to illnesses has its roots In our ancient evolutionary past and how understanding physical and mental illness in wild animals from depression and self-harm to cardiac disease has the potential to make us physically and mentally healthier humans. Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates via Zoom very soon. But we've got Dr. Natterson Horowitz today to answer our questions and give you a glimpse into her upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates titled, It's Possible to Be Sick as a Dog, Linking Human and Animal Health. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Inside Science, Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast, Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz, welcome to the program. Oh, delighted to be here. You know, I, I have to tell you, I'm delighted to talk to you. I know a little bit about you. My audience certainly will know about you from your work with Zubiquity and all of your other great work. You're going to be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up here. So I guess I'd just like to start there and, and maybe have you tell us briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. And you and I have talked a little bit. We're all on Zoom these days, but maybe tell us how you're going to be using Zoom to engage our audience.
2: Right. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, my my lecture is going to um, be looking at some connections between the health of humans and uh, non-human animals, and uh, in ways that are uh, may be unexpected, uh, some that are expected and some that are unexpected. And I'm my background is that I'm a, a human doctor. I'm a physician and a, a cardiologist specifically. And about 15 years ago. Uh, when I had the opportunity to start consulting on some of the cardiac issues uh, at zoos and some of the animals at zoos, I had a kind of epiphany uh, where I began to see that there was so much uh, information about health uh, that could be helpful to me as a physician in taking care of my human patients that um, that veterinarians had and wildlife biologists had. And so, what I'll be talking about for the Smithsonian's lecture um, is. A little bit about my journey uh, from being a physician into being what I call a species spanning uh, doctor, and um, also some of the insights uh, that I've had and um, some of the research that I'm doing um, moving toward the future.
0: Thank you for that. Yeah, this just sounds fascinating. I know our audience is just going to really enjoy this, and um, I certainly am very excited about it because it just does seem, it just makes sense. Honestly, Dr. Natasha Horowitz, I. I I think of animals and I think of the closeness that we share. In my research of you, I found that uh, you observed some of that same degree of um, similarity. In And I, I just thought it was fascinating that you were called in at one point to rule out a stroke in a chimpanzee. You, you were called in to diagnose. You, again, you did this fascinating consulting work. You diagnosed whether a, a gorilla had a torn aorta. And then you evaluated a macaw for a heart murmur among many, many other animal conditions. And I thought to myself, this is just fascinating stuff. I mean, you know, as a cardiologist, as as kind of a people doctor, there seems to be this line of demarcation, but it's blurred between what veterinarians do and what MDs and, and human people doctors can do. And so I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about what you've observed and what your research is about this kind of blurred line between us all.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, um, you know, looking back to 2005 or so, which is when I was first, you know, as a as a human doctor, um, invited to participate in the care of um, some magnificent animals at the Los Angeles Zoo. Um, you know, when I look back to where I was kind of mentally and intellectually, uh, where I was then and where I am now, um... It, it it's a lot of distance traveled. So um, I say that because back then when I was called to, you know, rule out a stroke in a chimpanzee or a torn aorta, you know, a gorilla, um, that sort of thing, it, everything was a surprise to me. I remember, um, even though I was already a full professor of medicine, I was, you know, I had been educated in a lot of great places. I, you know, I, I, I knew a lot about uh, a cardiovascular medicine, internal medicine, I actually even studied evolutionary biology as an undergraduate and a grad student at Harvard, but but everything was a surprise. I, I had the first year um, when there was a there was a lion and a concern about metastatic breast cancer. I I was surprised that that lions could have breast cancer. Um, I was you know surprised that a bird could have a you know a mitral valve that was torn, causing a heart murmur, uh, etc. Now I I look back. Them and I think, oh my gosh, why was why? How could this possibly have been surprising to me? Um, and the answer, um, kind of simply, I mean, I used to sort of say, oh, you know, there's the history of you know human medicine and the history of veterinary medicine, and they have you know they have not been particularly overlapping for cultural reasons and et- et cetera. But I think the real issue is is something. As simple as human exceptionalism. And that word, those those two words, human exceptionalism, in medicine, um, human exceptionalism manifests itself as as the many unexamined assumptions that we physicians have about the uniqueness of diseases to humans. So, um, for example, uh, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, particularly, um, atherosclerosis, which is the disease of the arteries, you know, the coronary arteries that is responsible for heart attacks, and atherosclerosis is also res- responsible for a lot of uh, strokes. Um, you know, we know that modern human lifestyles are, you know, contribute to this disease, right? We know that smoking is bad. We know that being overweight and having sedentary lifestyles, all of that is is contributes to atherosclerosis. But it turns out, that there are a number of, for example, bird species that are very vulnerable to atherosclerosis. And so I think that that the way that modern medicine has, sort of modern medical education has been, the way that we humans have been thinking about disease is that we've been very much focused on the um, contribution of modern human lifestyles to diseases, um, but have kind of ignored the shared vulnerability that we humans have with other animals to many of the diseases that, you know, that physicians see from heart attacks and heart failure to, you know, ovarian cancer and endometriosis to, I mean, and on and on. So uh, I look back and I, I, I just, um, I'm reminded of how how anthropocentric um, human medicine has been for so many centuries, and uh, how much over the past 15 years by really learning about animal health and um, you know adopting a much more what I call species spanning uh, approach to health, um, what a better physician I've become. And so in all of my work um, now, I'm really um, focused on helping human health professionals and Humans in general recognize the the power of um, looking at animal life for insights into, you know, our life as as human animals.
0: And in my research of you, I found that you, you know, you use this word "surprised." You 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 came across a fair bit of surprising work that veterinarians had actually been doing on this subject, and that had gone back for for decades. And so, I wonder. And you, and I you use this other word here with us to this phrase this great phrase species spanning I like that a lot. Is there ego at work here? Do do we as humans just mm-hmm. believe that we're special and that we're a, perhaps even superior th- than other species?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think these days there is. Um, I think we are all kind of waking up to. Um, And moving toward a decentering of of homo sapiens from the kind of the landscape of species. But yes, this this human exceptionalism is um, alive and well. I mean, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition has, you know, humans being created in the image of God. And um, that sort of sets off this, you know, a a long history, intellectual history of, of, of human life being valued, you know, in some ways being valued more than other species. And of course, you know, we know that our species has um, been, <laughs> been very essential um, to the destruction of many, many other species. But but the point is that, uh, yes, this idea that humans are somehow uniquely unique um, and and maybe better, quote unquote, yeah, I think that is alive and well, we see that. And in a way, maybe the reason that um, veterinarians historically have not been sufficiently recognized um, in terms of their, you know, deep knowledge and and um, the insights that they have to improve the health of, of humans and, you know, all animals um, is because maybe if, if we humans see animals as quote-unquote lower than us, then maybe somehow human health professionals have seen animal health professionals as less than, something like that. Um, but but of course, you know, what I know now, because I, I work extensively with veterinarians and, and veterinary students and medical students, is that no matter what, uh, as, what aspect of human medicine I look at, uh, I can, you know, I can understand more about the cause of the disease and do more to um, prevent and in some cases treat the disease by thinking about it and working with, Thinking about it from a you know a species standing perspective and working with vets, so um, I have a few papers in the last couple of years where um, I've seen this so clearly. Um, you know, I wrote a paper with um, a, a veterinarian and, a, and a, um, a biological anthropologist called "Female Health Across the Tree of Life," and you know, we looked at uh, breast cancer across mammals. We looked at um, endometrial diseases, endometriosis, and other issues with the endometrium across mammals. We looked at ovarian cancer in not just mammals, but ovarian cancer cases in birds and reptiles and in fish. And what you know, this study revealed to me was uh, that there are many directions that we human doctors can be moving toward to to protect the health of women uh, by paying attention to the studies that these wildlife biologists and veterinarians are doing um, to protect the health of, of animals. So that that paper and that process was very eye-opening to me uh, as a physician and as a woman, frankly. Uh, I'm working also on, on almost a soon-to-be-published paper looking at, at cataracts right, across the tree of life and working with veterinary ophthalmologists who um, have such a deep understanding of, you know, how different animals are vulnerable, either more vulnerable or less vulnerable. I mean, this has just set up this whole um, research agenda for the future, where we can look at um, animals and begin thinking about animals who are living in and around human communities and populations, um, and think about their visual health. And how their visual health and how they respond to environmental factors that may be contributing to cataracts—you know—how that connects to, you know, the, the risk of cataracts in human beings. So it's it's everything from you know visual health to um, even mental health. Um, I am working on a, a project with um, a fascinating group of veterinarians now, who are are. They're, they're called behaviorists. They're sort of the psychiatrists of the veterinary world. And we are looking at um, a syndrome that affects um, female horses and sometimes sheep and goats, where after they deliver, they um, reject the neonate. Um, in some cases, they may actually harm the neonate. And interestingly, these veterinarians treat um, these female animals who have just, just given birth with oxytocin. And so that has gotten me really interested in the parallel between postpartum depression in our species and um, this syndrome that is seen in in these other um, female mammals.
0: Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, And everything Smithsonian. As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a non-profit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. Dr. Natterson Horowitz will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. The title of Dr. Natterson Horowitz's presentation is It's Possible to Be Sick as a Dog, Linking Human and Animal Health. Dr. Natterson Horowitz has written the wonderful book, Zubiquity, and I want to talk for just a moment about that book because it's got an awful lot of fantastic attention. There's still to this day rave reviews for this book. In the New York Journal of Books, Diane Brandley calls Zubiquity an ambitious work, saying not only has Barbara Natterson Horowitz presented a very credible argument for collaboration between disciplines, but she has done so in a most entertaining and beautifully written manner. Let's talk a little bit about Zubiquity, Dr. Natterson Horowitz.
2: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this is, um, so Catherine Bowers and I w- wrote Subiquity. That was our first book and where we, you know, applied this species-spanning lens to health. Um, and one of the things we realized in the years we were doing research was that there were, I mean, there were some collaborations between physicians and veterinarians, mostly around infectious disease, you know, around zoonosis. But, but where were the conferences where, you know, human, where psychiatrists were meeting with veterinary behaviorists to talk about Separation anxiety, which is common in humans and common in dogs and cats, for example. Um, Where were the conferences where uh, the human cardiologists were uh, meeting with veterinary cardiologists to talk about? uh, There's a there's a a, a kind of a a cardiac syndrome called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is um, when when a young athlete has sudden death. That's a a pretty common cause for that, and you know that occurs um, also in a number of of other animals. It's it's common in certain breeds of cats. There are, um, in any event, where where are those conferences? And so we actually started these ubiquity conferences back in, oh gosh, 2012, where we brought uh, UCLA Medical School faculty together with uh, UC Davis um, School of Veterinary Medicine faculty. And um, that was our first, and then we did another one. Uh, And these conferences, we have, we have a case, let's say, of, um, uh, of atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is the most common electrical disturbance um, in humans. And, but of course, horses get atrial fibrillation and dogs get AFib. And so we had you know a veterinary cardiologist talking about a, a case of atrial fibrillation in a horse and a human cardiologist talking about a, a case of AFib in a human. And they had this conversation. And then we had vet students and med students asking questions. Um, so in any event, we, we we did those with multiple cases, and then we all piled in buses from UCLA and Westwood and went to the Los Angeles Zoo, where the veterinarians were the teachers, the attending physicians, teaching the physicians. Um, we were The physicians were the medical students, in a sense, and our professors were the veterinarians who were um, teaching us about animal health. So then that's been duplicated um, all around the world. I, I, Catherine and I don't. Um, host them anymore. I mean, we, we attend them and we help, um, we help the med schools and the vet schools put them together because it's our mission. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're contacted, um, uh, you know, by the, the last one was in Portugal, actually a few months ago. Um, a, uh, it was the, uh, a joint, a joint as a Zubiquity conference between the Portuguese medical association and the Portuguese veterinary medical association. And, uh, they wanted to focus on female health So we had a a wonderful typically conference there. So, yeah, I think it's really important that there's more um, contact. But it's not just, yes, we need more professional respect for um, not just veterinary medicine, but really what what wildlife biologists have to contribute to human health, what environmental um, biologists and conservation biologists, because all of that is so relevant to human health. So there's, um, you know, physicians and other human health professionals. I really do think could benefit from um, a, an expanded understanding of the the centrality of those other fields to human health and greater respect. That's that's one. But I also think that um, yes, physicians should be collaborating with veterinarians. I mean, I just finished last Thursday um, a a Harvard Medical School course for fourth year students, and it was so exciting watching them, hearing a, a, a brilliant veterinary oncologist uh, discuss, you know, her cases, both the, the kinds of chemotherapies and immunotherapies, and 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 even how she approaches, you know, end of life conversations. I mean, these fourth year Harvard medical students were blown away, and it was just it was really gratifying to watch that. Um, because they're about to be launched into the world as young physicians. Uh, but the but the other piece of it, yes, it's professional respect. Yes, it's more exposure and collaboration between you know physicians and veterinarians and students. But I think the other key piece of it, uh, which is actually very central, is um, a greater emphasis on evolution and evolutionary biology in in medical education, because if a physician really wants to understand why uh, her patient, you know, has breast cancer or heart failure or postpartum depression. Um, you know, a significant piece of that answer um, is can be found in only in the evolutionary history that has shaped, you know, the the human body and brain. Well, I
0: want to get back for just a moment to this subject of uh adverse experiences, mental health and, and so on, because in my research of you and and, and you've you've referred to this in, in, in Zubiquity as well, and that is that there is a tendency uh, for even self-harm among animals. And I wonder are are animals more vulnerable to some of these mental health conditions than humans? Yeah,
2: so um yeah mental health, mental illness is something that um, you know, when when I was talking about human exceptionalism, this this idea that we humans are uniquely vulnerable to certain um, diseases and pathologies, uh, there's nowhere where that is, um, <laughs> I think, a, a bigger blind spot than when it comes to mental health and illness. And you know, um, if, if you, you know, fortunately these days we recognize that mental illness is a is a brain disease. The way, you know, uh, heart failure is a is the you know a disease of the heart, right? We understand that it's a physical illness, um, and 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 yet um, there is still this uh, kind of resistance to the idea that uh, that that animals, non-human animals, might have mental illness. I mean, there's it's it's shifting, but there's still a kind of raised eyebrow um, that I notice when I'm giving a lecture and talking about um, the connection between you know hoarding disorder in in humans and. Um, the many, many species of animals that hoard regularly as part of a survival strategy, or when I'm giving a lecture about um, eating disorders in, in uh, humans, when I'm talking about bulimia nervosa, uh, for example, or, um, uh, you know, anyway, other eating disorders in humans. And I, I then um, describe, you know, the um, examples um, of animals who respond to stress by either overconsuming Or sometimes under consuming. Um, There are even uh, interesting syndromes uh, in which animals will induce vomiting to reduce stress, certain kinds of social stress. So, you know, I noticed that there's, um, it, it takes an extra beat for some listeners, sometimes maybe physicians, to kind of begin to, you know, take the time to say, okay, you know, we humans share you know, a significant amount of, you know, of, of biology, you know, with, let's say other primates and other mammals and actually other vertebrates when it comes to our you know brain biology and function. And okay, maybe there are, you know, shared vulnerabilities, but, but it, there's, there's a bit of, of resistance. Um, and I should say that Catherine Bowers and I, who, you know, are research partners and writing partners, um, and wrote both Subiquity and our uh, latest book, Wildhood. Um, which looks at adolescence from a species spanning perspective. But we um when we were writing Subiquity and just learning so much about animal psychopathology, um, we knew that it would be a mistake to not include a lot of it in the book. And there was no there was no form of psychopathology that um, we were more kind of that made us more convinced that it was critical that we uh, look at the connections between human and animal mental health than self-injury. Um, so, so self-harm in humans uh, is, uh, you know, this it's a well-known syndrome and, um, you know, there's different kinds of self-harm. Um, about 20 years ago, um, there was, you know, there was really a spike in what was called cutting, and you know, sometimes it's called cutting, but there are many other forms of human self-injury and it's associated with, Certain other forms of of human psychopathology, and you know, fortunately, there's an increased understanding of what the what the the issues are, and there's um, there's good treatment for it. But um, it was really interesting to learn that self-injury, self-harm, is common in certain um, in animals who are in certain settings, and it's it's typically uh, seen in, in animals who are in the type of captivity that fortunately these days in, um, you know, educated veterinarians and educated animal specialists know, um, that these are not good types of captivity, but the types of of captivity in which self-injury is seen is, um, where animals are isolated, where they don't have social contact, where, um, animals are, are, are bored, right? Where they're not giving enough enrichment, where they're not, you know, giving a chance to, to, forage and and problem solve and um, and do this kinds of things that an animal in the wild would need to do to get food etc um, so isolation and boredom uh, really dials up the risk of self-injury and in those types of settings you know animals will pluck out their hair pluck out their feathers in the case of birds um, bite themselves you know it, all kinds of very severe forms of self-injury um, one of the most, I, I think, early insights that Catherine and I had about the importance of looking across species to understand mental health in humans um, was the kinds of interventions and prevention strategies that veterinarians use uh, for self-injury. And they just made so much sense. Uh, and we both felt that they could be applied uh, to human, you know, human beings who were vulnerable um, but we also noted that it was unlikely, at least back then, that uh, a psychiatrist or a you know a, a physician would even know about self injury in animals, let alone these um, very effective interventions that are used by vets.
0: This is just fascinating stuff. Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz has been our guest today. Dr. Natterson Horowitz will be at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check our website for more information about Dr. Natterson Horowitz's presentation, links to other research that Dr. Natterson Horowitz has done, along with information about her wonderful books, Ubiquity, and then her other books. So, Dr. Natterson Horowitz, we're going to leave it there for today, but gosh, I'd love to have you back because I just think our audience is, is really going to be interested in this going forward. There's so much that we can learn. So thank you for your time today, for being so generous, and we look forward to seeing you at Smithsonian Associates.
2: Fantastic. I can't wait.
0: My thanks to Dr. Barbara Natterson Horowitz. Dr. Natterson Horowitz will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates via Zoom coming up. And the title of Dr. Natterson Horowitz's presentation at Smithsonian Associates is It's Possible to Be Sick as a Dog, Linking Human and Animal Health. Please check our website for more details. Of course, my thanks to Dr. Natterson Horowitz for appearing on the show today. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I am telling you each show followed by by my message to eliminate assault rifles. Only members of the military need these weapons. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn. School. Let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show Art of Living interview series from Smithsonian Associates on radio and podcast. Thanks everybody and we will see you next week.